chapter 19. I'd like to read a few verses from this chapter, beginning with verse 6. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 16. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise and glorify you this day for the privilege of assembling in your presence here to lift up our voices in praise to you in our hymns and psalms here to hear you address us from the throne with regard to your law and the promise and assurance of forgiveness to those who ask for forgiveness through jesus christ dear father we praise and glorify you now that we may hear you once more address us from the throne with your word and we pray, Lord, that this word, which was inspired by your Holy Spirit, would be applied to our hearts and minds by that same Holy Spirit, your Spirit, so that we might, by your grace, might be built up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. amen. All of us have probably witnessed or been part of a dramatic wedding. It may have not been our own wedding. Ours may have been quite, uh, quite without ostentation. But surely we've seen or been attended some wedding which was a great production. I can remember when I was a pastor in Hanover Park, Illinois, 
that one of the young women in the church, she had always dreamed of having the perfect wedding in the white church with the steeple in front of it and even the white picket fence out front. And sure enough, when it came time for her wedding, she found just the right building in order to rent it. In order to film this great event, she had no fewer than three video cameras going at the same time and two additional photographers that's five men wandering around the room taking photos and videotaping the entire wedding believe me it was a big production far more dramatic however than the preparations for any wedding that we might have been part of in our private pasts are the preparations for the wedding feast that's described in Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 6. In Revelation 19, there is painted for us this great scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb with a mighty voice like roaring waters and many peals of thunder the marriage is announced inviting people to attend it first giving praise to god the almighty and then announcing the arrival of the readied bride dressed with righteous deeds like fine linen bright and pure and a pronouncement of blessing on everyone who's invited to that supper and that wedding. But in this description, things are not as we might have expected. It's not the groom. You see, what we're used to is the fact that the pastor walks in with the groom and that it's the groom who's awaiting the appearance of his bride, who's then escorted up the aisle to the groom. But that's not what we find here. Instead, we find that it's the bride who's ready. And instead of the groom waiting for her, it's the bride who's waiting for the groom in this description found in Revelation chapter 19. With our mind's eye, careful, of course, not to break the second commandment, we see her, Christ's church from all the ages, Christ's bride for whom he died and was raised and is now ascended all dressed up and waiting for her groom when suddenly heaven is opened and he appears but not quite in the way that we might have expected him to appear he appears not adorned as a groom to his wedding in the finest of clothes to match the beauty of his bride but in the clothing of a warrior king as judge and maker of war riding on a white horse with flaming eyes and many crowns he wears a robe that was dipped in blood and he is followed by the armies of heaven rather than by groomsmen. The following verses of Revelation 19, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, which I didn't read, describe for us a gory meal. This great supper of God, it, that's what it's called, the supper of God, 
is not the same as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Rather, it is a meal to which carrion-eating birds are invited to feed on kings, captains, mighty men, and horses who served the great beast, the enemy of the king of kings and lord of lords, who along with his prophet is cast into the lake of fire at the end of the chapter. The next chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, describes the binding and then judgment of Satan and the judgment of the living and the dead. And it's only in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, that the bride is finally seen again, coming down out of heaven for her husband. There has been a long wait between her dressing for her wedding and the announcement of the invitation with its announcement of the invitation and the actual marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a weight that is full of war, full of conquest, full of judgment, and the removal from the earth of the enemies of both husband and bride. What the Revelation 19, 20, and the opening verses of chapter 21 have to do with Ezekiel 38? Well, first you need to understand that Ezekiel 38 our text this morning is linked together with Ezekiel 39 into one single complex prophecy it's too much material to preach on in one sermon so therefore it's divided and we're only going to look at the first half Ezekiel 38 but Ezekiel 39 are one single prophecy Second, we need to note that the portion of Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 17, that describes the feast, feasting of birds on the dead bodies is taken directly from Ezekiel 39. The Apostle John is quoting directly out of Ezekiel 39 to describe the invitation of the carrion birds to come and to feed on the carcasses of kings and generals, mighty men, and horses. Next, we need to understand that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, we find the actual mention of Gog and Magog the names of which we find here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And therefore, we are forced to conclude that Gog, who's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, should be identified with the beast of Revelation 19 and chapter 20. Ezekiel 38, then, is part of the Old Testament perspective on the war that's described in Revelation chapter 19 that serves as prelude for the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, an invitation goes out to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then we're given in the rest of Revelation 19 and chapter 20 the description of war. Because the one who arrives following the, the sending out of the invitation to the wedding supper is dressed for war with blazing eyes, many crowns, riding on a white horse, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
But between the time of the invitation and the actual marriage supper, there is war. And Ezekiel 38 is the description, the Old Testament perspective of the description of that war that takes place as prelude for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is part of the preparations that must take place before we can live with our husband Christ in undisturbed peace forever. It is part of the description that we have been given for the end that must take place before the beginning of a new heaven, a new earth, and the life that we will have with Jesus Christ as his bride in the age to come. Unlike the original persecuted hearers of Ezekiel, I'm sorry, of Revelation 19 and 20, Ezekiel's original audience are those Israelites whom God removed from the promised land into Babylonian exile on account of theirs and their father's sins. By the time of this message found in Ezekiel 38, Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. Although they have no earthly reason for hope, God has promised them, given them a message of hope over and over again. Promises of cleansing from their sins. Promise of new life and restoration. In Ezekiel 38, I would like us to see God's timing, God's plan, and God's glory. As I've already mentioned, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a prophecy, a single prophecy that's given to the people of Israel while they are in exile in Babylon. It's a prophecy that comes after God has promised the exiles that he will take away their bad leaders and become their shepherd. It comes after he promised to rid them of the enemy nations who covet their land. That's Ezekiel 35. And after his promise to cleanse the land from all its idolatry and uncleannesses and make it like Eden, the beginning half of Ezekiel 36. It comes after God's promise to change his people by washing them clean from their sin, giving them his Holy Spirit, the rest of Ezekiel 36, raising, from the, raising them from the dead and, make, and him being their God and they being his people forever, Ezekiel 37. As we open this chapter, we find that verses 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to this and the next chapter. They tell us that these chapters are about the Lord God's judgment and his defeat of Israel's enemy, Gog. The Lord commands his prophet Ezekiel to face Gog and prophesy against him. Gog is described as being from the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, with a search of our Bibles, we find that Magog is mentioned as early in the Bible as Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as the second son of Noah's son, Japheth. And Meshach is mentioned in Psalm 120, one of the Psalms of Ascent. And earlier in Ezekiel, Meshach and Tubal are not only described as trading partners of the nation of Tyre, who used slaves and bronze to purchase Tyre's goods, but those two nations are described as nations in Sheol, the place of the dead, who greet Pharaoh in Egypt upon 
Pharaoh's arrival there in Sheol. Magog, Meshech, and Tubal were part of what we today call Turkey. To Israel, even to the Israelites in exile, these were lands that had been heard of, but with which their own nation of Israel had had little to no direct contact over the centuries. We might fairly say that Israel didn't have a clue that these nations would be a threat to them, apart from this prophecy. The name Gog is probably a reference to the 7th century BC king who invented the use of coins and who ruled some 150 years before this prophecy was given. Just as the name David is repeatedly used by the prophets to describe the future Messiah of Israel here, the notorious name of Gog is used to describe the future great leader of the nations who will invade and attack the people of the Lord. In Ezekiel 38, we see the Lord summon and punish Gog. God's timing. Verses 3 through 9 of Ezekiel 38. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host. The Lord's first words of address to Gog declare that the Lord is against him. God says that he will turn Gog about by putting hooks into his jaw and leading him out with his fully dressed army and horses. Now, the armies of other distant nations from the far south and the far north will be with them, including Push, Put. I'm sorry, Persia, Push, Cush, Put, Gomer, and Beth Tograma. Just like Magog, Tubal, and Meshech, some of these allied nations have already been mentioned by Ezekiel in earlier prophecies as nations which are also already in Sheol to their greet Pharaoh when he's thrown down into the place of the dead. The list of confederate nations are from the far north and from the far south, and it's meant to convey the fact that this threat that is against Israel is universal. But I want you to see, first of all, who's bringing this battle about. It's going to include many nations, far north, far south, further away than Babylon was to Israel most distant nations on the known world at the time, as far as the Israelites knew. But notice how they're going to get there. God says, I'm going to put a hook into your mouth, God, and I'm going to bring you along. Now, putting these metal hooks into the mouth, this is how you would capture a crocodile in Ezekiel's day. If you went fishing for crocodiles, put a metal hook in its mouth and you'd pull it along. God says that that's what he's going to do to Gog. He's going to stick a hook into his mouth, and he's going to turn him about. He is going to force him into this situation, forcing him into this war. He will be a leader of multiple nations from the far north and from the far south. They will follow him, and he will lead them into this battle. However, as significant as the size and the direction of the threat might be, as I've already said, it's the Lord who is making it clear from the beginning that he is directing this attack. This isn't going to happen because God lets it happen. 
so-called permissive will that we hear about. This is going to happen because the Lord is going to make it happen. It is the Lord who has put the hook into Gog's mouth to lead him to this battle. The Lord has appointed Gog leader of this multi-nation alliance. And therefore the Lord tells him that he's to be ready. He's responsible for making sure that all of the army is ready. That it's prepared for that day of battle. Because he says then after a long time, in the latter days, at a time when Israel has been restored and the people are living, in, are living securely, Gog and his hosts will descend on Israel like a storm, like a cloud covering the land. It's very interesting to think about the Lord's message to the people here. Ezekiel's audience are a people in exile. Yet so certain is their return to the land for which they have lost hope of seeing that Ezekiel speaks of a time in the distant future when they will not only be living in the land, but they will have been living in the land securely for a long time. But perhaps even more amazing in this message to a people who are still in exile is that the Lord is saying that he is going to purposefully lead a new and as yet unknown enemy against his people, not just from the north like Aram or Assyria or Babylon, not just from the south like Egypt. No, God is going to find peoples from the farthest distances in the north and the farthest distances in the south people from lands more distant than Babylon or Egypt, and he is going to force them to attack his people, Israel. Now, if I were to tell you that I was going to burn down your house, and then I was going to rebuild your house, and then I was going to burn it down again. You might wonder to yourself, why move into that second house? Why even bother? Why bother? Why go home? Might well be the question of these exiles. If God is only going to take us back to the promised land in order to bring not just Assyria, not just Babylon, but all of the nations from the far north and the far south against us as one mighty army. Why go back? Why return from our exile? If God is simply going to bring the nations of the earth against us. God's plan. Verses 10 through 13. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. On the day appointed by the Lord, a plan will enter Gog's mind. He will plan to go up against a people living securely. We're told that they're without walls, without bars, and without gates. 
out of pure greed and covetousness, he will plan to go against a people whose land was once laid waste, a people who have been gathered from the nations, a people who have now accumulated flocks and herds, a people whom God describes as dwelling in the center of the earth. And they will be at such peace that they will be living without any defenses at all. No walls, no bars, no gates. Able to anticipate what Gog intends to do and anticipating the possible booty and the profit that they might make, even the merchants of the east-west trade route can see what's going on here and say, are you going to get out some plunder? Are you going to get some booty? Because they're anticipating how they might be made wealthy through this conquest of this land and how they might be able to get something out of it for themselves. Now, although brief, the description of the land here is quite a contrast to the description given of this same land elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, anywhere elsewhere in the Old Testament. From the time of the Exodus to the time of post-Babylonian rebuilding, Israel is always described as a land of walled cities. You remember when Moses sent the spies, the 12 spies, into the land? What did they say? They came back and their report was that it's a land of walled cities and giants, a land that would swallow them. And what was it? That Joshua, upon 40 years later, invading the land, what is the city that they first came to that was surrounded by a wall? Jericho. And why was it that it took David so long to conquer Jerusalem? Walls around it. This land, first of Canaan and then of Israel, was always a land of walled cities. Always a land of walled cities. But here we are given a description of the land that says that the cities don't have walls. They don't have bars. They don't have gates. Does this mean that they will have arrived at a day when they no longer trust in the strength of man, but only trust in the Lord? We don't know. Even at a time when the exiles can barely imagine their own return to the land, let alone a restoration, the likes of which had been promised in Ezekiel 34 through 37 with promises of God removing the bad leaders, the bad shepherds, and giving them good shepherds, promises of removing Edom as an enemy, promises of God pouring out his Holy Spirit, taking away their hearts of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, promises of God cleansing not just them but cleansing the land itself and making the land like the garden of Eden promises of raising them from the dead you know the valley of dry bones Ezekiel 37 at a time when God has made promises like this they would have been able to very well imagine other nations coveting their land the coveting of their land by nearby Edom, as I've already said, and God's judgment on Edom for its covetous actions was the theme of Ezekiel 35. But now here God is describing Israel's land as so rich, so wealthy, 
so productive of flocks and herds that the nations of the earth are gathering out of covetousness to take what they can get. And at the same time, describing its own, Israel's own situation as so defenseless from a worldly perspective that it lives in unwalled cities without bars and gates. Therefore, thereby presenting a situation for the nations of the earth to be drawn into a plan laid out by God himself far in advance. God's glory. Verses 14 through 23. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Now Ezekiel is commanded to speak to Gog directly and ask him if he will not know it when God's people, Israel, lives securely in its land. The Lord calls Israel my people twice in these verses, and this, more than anything else, should have signaled to the exiles how much will have changed in this day and how much will remain changed. They will truly be God's people. He will be their defender. When in the last chapter, God declared that Israel will be his people and he will be their God, at the close of Ezekiel 37, he meant it. On the appointed day, Gog will come with a huge army riding on horses. They will come out of the north against the Lord's people like a cloud covering the land. They will do this because the Lord will bring them against his land so that the nations will know the person of the Lord. They will be forced to acknowledge him and to see that the real conflict is between the Lord God and Gog. Through this conflict, the Lord's holiness will be vindicated before all of them. Finally, the Lord asks Gog whether he is the enemy whom the Lord caused his prophets to speak about in the past when they spoke of him coming against his people. Well, if we were to search the prophets we would find that the Lord's prophets often, often spoke of great enemies coming against his people. Enemies that would be used by the Lord himself to bring judgment on his people. But that is not what is happening here. Gog is not coming as an instrument of judgment. He is being brought to his own judgment. The Lord has planned this day and will make it happen. But his anger against Gog will be no less for the Lord having planned all of it. Gog is fully responsible for all that he is about to do. He thinks that this is his plan, but it's the Lord's. Therefore, the Lord's anger will be blazing and will come against Gog, signaling his arrival on that day. The earth and every living thing will quake, we are told. Fish, birds, beasts, creeping things, and all mankind will quake at his presence. Mountains, cliffs, and walls will be leveled. The Lord will summon a sword and cause the armies following Gog to slaughter one another. Pestilence and sword torrential rain and hail, fire and sulfur, the Lord will slaughter the armies of the nations that have come against his people and come against his land. In this the nations will see the Lord's greatness and holiness. The Lord will make himself known in the eyes of the nations so that they will know that he alone is the Lord. 
Yes, the Lord has planned all that is about to happen according to his own timing. But Gog is completely responsible for his covetousness and actions. It is the Lord's people and the Lord's land that Gog set his sights on, and therefore the Lord will make Gog and his followers the objects of his judgment. Now, while some would want to identify specific nations and enemies surrounding the land of Israel as possible fulfillments, fulfillment for, the pro for this prophecy, there are any number of things that prevent any such attempt. For instance, I would point out that while these regions that are named here, both north and south, are largely, but not completely, Islamic today, that there is little chance, little chance, of the modern nation of Israel ever giving up all of its defenses and becoming a land like the likes of which it is described in this prophecy. In order to properly understand this chapter, we need to remember that the promises made to Israel in the previous chapters, particularly Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God promises to take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, where God promises to sprinkle them with clean water and to take away all their uncleannesses and defilements, where God promises to pour out his spirit on his people and to make them live. Where God promises to raise them from the dead. That those promises are and can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. Only in Jesus Christ. He's the one who raises the dead. He's the one who gives us new life by taking away our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. He is the one who pours out his spirit upon us to make us live and who cleanses us from all of our defilements through his death on the cross and his resurrection for our justification. All of those promises in the previous chapters are fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. And it is only in him that we can be called his people and that we can call him our God. This prophecy in Ezekiel 38 then, like those before it, can only be for those who are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. As John saw, this chapter is about Christ's war on all those who do not believe. It is their end and the end of this creation that is described in this chapter. Because, as I've said, one no less than the Apostle John himself saw that this passage is about a future day when it is the church of Jesus Christ that is surrounded by the nations, when it is the bride of Jesus Christ who is to be defended by her Lord. This prophecy speaks of the day when the church will appear to be defenseless in the eyes of the world. Are we a structure that is surrounded by the walls of, by walls of stone? 
Are we a structure which play, has to place bars and gates around us to defend us? We're a people, the church of Jesus Christ, that has been built and made out of living stones. You are the stones. And the Lord himself is your wall. This prophecy speaks of a day when the nations will covet the wealth of Christ's church and believe that it is theirs for the taking. Its promises, therefore, which are ours only in Christ Jesus, point to a day when Christ will deliver us from all of his and our enemies. The beginning of the new comes only after the end of the old. No more enemies. Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, comes to his wedding feast by way of war and final judgment. He comes with the aroma of burning sulfur, victorious in battle and glorious in his judgment. But most of all, he comes for you. And therefore you must be prepared for that day, but not by building walled and gated cities. Bride of Christ, there will be no need for fear on that day when the nations of this earth, which covet all your wealth, come against you because they think that it's theirs for the taking. When the nations of this earth have surrounded Christ's church, the reason that they will be there is because God himself will be the one who has brought them against you. Like putting a hook in Gog's mouth and leading him with all of his hordes. When Christ's church is under attack, it's because the Lord has brought the enemy on that final day. Not for your judgment, not for your destruction, but rather for the nation's destruction. And so that God might bring glory and praise to himself in all of the in the eyes of all of the nations forcing them to acknowledge who he is and what he has done through Jesus Christ alone Amen. bride of Christ there will be no need for fear on that day when the nations of the earth the enemies of Christ surround you in order to destroy you they will be there as I've said because God has brought them they will be there because Christ your husband is going to judge and destroy them in order to deliver you forever from his and your enemies yet just as our God will one day draw the nations to their ultimate destruction on account of their resistance and opposition to him even now he is drawing to himself those who may now be his enemies, but who by his grace he makes 
acknowledge him to receive the saving faith that comes only through Jesus Christ in order to become part of his precious bride. You see, until that day when the nations are forced to come against you, he is drawing out men and women everywhere out of the ranks of the enemy to make them part of his bride. And you and I are some of those. You and I are some of those. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the apostles took the message of their Savior to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The invitation has gone out. It is calling men and women everywhere to repent of their sins and to flee to Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation, as their only hope for forgiveness from their sins, as their only hope to be spared from the judgment that is coming. Because following this invitation that has already been sent out and that has sounded forth around the entire world, one day there will be a summons, a summons to war, a summons that will demand that every enemy of Christ's church be assembled against Christ and his church. A summons that will bring every enemy against Christ's church. A summons that will bring all of those enemies to their own destruction. The invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb has gone out. It is an invitation to flee to Christ, as I've said, and to find in him love and forgiveness from all your sins. It is an invitation to be found righteous in his sight, in the sight of God, through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Please, I urge you to answer that invitation. Come to the wedding feast of the bride. If you do not, you will be summoned to a war that you can only lose. One way or the other, you will have to acknowledge him who alone is God and Savior. The answer to the invitation leads to salvation and glory. The summons to war leads only to death and destruction. So the question is, would you be bride? Or would you be enemy? I urge you, answer the invitation to salvation through Christ alone. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus Christ, to whom by your grace we may, by your grace we may flee and find forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life. We pray now, dear Heavenly Father, that by your grace and mercy, 
that you would cause that invitation to continue to sound forth. And Lord, we would ask your forgiveness because we know so many who do not know you. Not just co-worker, not just the person at the grocery store who we see all the time and have never spoken to, but neighbors, aunts, uncles, cousins, perhaps grandparents, perhaps children. Lord, we pray that you would stir in us courage to speak to them. Stir in us an urgency to not only show them Christ through our love and through our hospitality, through our saying hello and asking how they're doing and telling them that we'll pray for them. Stir in us, Father, our courage and an urgency to speak to them about the matter of life. Because we know that it's through your word that your spirit works. Therefore, they have a need to hear that word. Father, stir in us the need and the urgency to invite them to come to worship. To hear the preaching of the word. Stir in us courage and urgency to tell them about him who alone is God who died on the cross for the sins of those who would believe in him who was raised from the dead that we might have forgiveness that we might have new life that we might be justified in your sight as you would declare us righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ alone Father, we know that that invitation has gone out because by your grace, you made us answer it. We pray, Lord, that you would cause many more to answer it before that day when the summons goes forth to call your enemies to war. We pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond to the word by singing together hymn number 320, Rejoice All Ye Believers, hymn 320. 